This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Once again, welcome to the Legal Talk Network and our show, Workers' Comp Matters, where we focus on issues in workers' compensation cases. I'm Alan S. Pierce. I'm an attorney with the law firm of Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano, and we represent injured workers and their families in workers' compensation, social security, and personal injury cases. Today's show comes to you from Florida, where we are at the annual meeting of WILIG, the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group. Among the various topics covered here this past week has been an interesting discussion of a somewhat controversial component of many states' workers' compensation law. That is the concept and implementation of medical treatment guidelines and their impact on the delivery of reasonable and necessary medical treatment to injured workers. Today's guest is attorney Michael Gruber, who delivered a paper entitled Medical Treatment Guidelines, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Michael Gruber is an attorney with the law firm of Pasternak, Tilker, Ziegler, Walsh, Stanton, and Romano in New York City. He is a graduate of Michigan State. He got his law degree at the University of Denver College of Law, and he has been a workers' compensation attorney since 1996. Michael is a member of numerous bar associations and is on the board of Willick. Michael, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for inviting me here today. Now, Massachusetts, several years ago, adopted medical treatment guidelines. Around the time, we also adopted a procedure known as utilization review. And keeping in mind that Workers' Comp matters and our show reaches all 50 states and that there are 50 different systems of workers' compensation just in the various states, some states don't have utilization review or, for that matter, medical treatment guidelines. Let's first define the terms. What are medical treatment guidelines and how are they used in the workers' comp field? Well, medical treatment guidelines are a list of procedures that a state would mandate a physician to use when treating injured workers. Based upon the specific diagnosis, based upon the clinical findings, there are lists of recommended treatments in a medical treatment guidelines that a physician must follow in their course of practice. For example, for a rotator cuff, they'll list when an MRI would be necessary, what findings would be necessary for physical therapy, and what sort of findings would then lead to surgery. About 24, 25 states at this point have mandated medical treatment guidelines, and several others are considering the implementation of medical treatment guidelines. It's a very hot topic when the issue of workers' compensation reform or deform, as we like to call it, is being discussed in the various states. And what are the primary rationales given for establishing guidelines? It would seem on its surface that uh, there should be some type of uniformity in the delivery of treatment. Let's say the duration of physical therapy. I know in Massachusetts and many other states, ongoing or open-ended therapy, or in particular, let's take, I don't mean to pick on them, but let's take, for example, chiropractic care. Part of the philosophy of chiropractic care is that there is a certain a maintenance level that is maintained. And I know in Massachusetts, they have put some fairly significant limits on the duration and frequency of chiropractic care or other types of therapeutic hands-on type of care. What is the rationale for these guidelines? Well, the theory behind the medical treatment guidelines is twofold. 
One, the proponents of the medical treatment guidelines say that it delivers faster and more effective treatment to an injured worker. The proponents also say that employers and insurance carriers will save money by having certain defined medical costs and, as you say, certain limitations on treatment, so they're not paying for what they consider to be excessive treatment. With respect to limitations on treatment, however, one of the drawbacks that we find for medical treatment guidelines is that they don't take into account individual medical providers' judgment anymore. And that's one of the main criticisms we have when we're discussing medical treatment guidelines. But the theory behind it is it delivers more effective, faster medical care. There are two companies who put forth the medical treatment guidelines, the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine and the Work Loss Data Institute. They publish the two main sets of prepackaged medical treatment guidelines that almost all states who have adopted medical treatment guidelines base their systems on. They either adopt them in whole or, as we have in New York, they base them on those two systems and forms a hybrid type of system to fit the particular needs of the jurisdiction. Now, certainly the title of the concept uses the word guidelines. And as a layman, and I look at the term guidelines and I see that they are merely an aid or a guide. <clears throat> to what degree are they the state of the law? In other words, how rigid are they? If they are guidelines, it would seem to me there's some elasticity, some room for individual circumstances. How does that work when, let's say, a treatment guideline says you're allowed six weeks of physical therapy two times a week for a particular injury? I think that really depends on the jurisdiction. In New York, the guidelines are not just guidelines. The guidelines are the absolute be-all and end-all of what treatment you will receive as an injured worker. When you have a difference of opinion between a treating physician's recommendation and uh, what is contained in the guidelines, most states have a procedure for requesting authorization for treatment which is either outside or in excess of the guidelines. In New York, and I think in many other states, it's called a variance process. That's taken straight from the ACOEM's handbook. In New York, where I practice, the variance process is so onerous that it's almost impossible to get a variance request granted by either the judge or the Workers' Compensation Board, or we have the option of going to medical arbitration on that as well. And also in New York, the courts have recently come down with a ruling that says that if a procedure is not in the medical treatment guidelines, it is presumptively deemed to be medically not necessary. So in New York, the guidelines aren't just guidelines, and that's another argument we have against the implementation of guidelines in other states is that they tell you when they're being implemented that there are safeguards written into the guidelines or the procedures, the implementation procedures, to protect the individual physician's judgments. But at least in New York, they don't work. I know in other states, some judges have the power to override what's in the guidelines. So that really depends on the individual state, I think. Now, workers' comp in its design many years ago was, and I think the term I'm going to use is fairly universally applied. It's supposed to be a simple and summary process. And if you look at workers' comp practice, practitioners and practice over the last, certainly last 10 or 20 years, it has become less simple and less summary and, of course, delays 
hurt everybody. They hurt the injured worker and a family if they are seeking benefits. They hurt an insurance company and an employer if there are benefits that are being paid that shouldn't be. So when you talk now about a controversy over treatment, and you mention a variance procedure, and you mention a medical arbitration, just give me an idea of the time frame, because we are dealing here with injuries probably in the early part of the injury process where prompt treatment will lead to prompt recovery and save costs along the way. What are the costs both in terms of time as well as legal expense and what they call friction costs associated with appealing or attempting to override a denial of an MRI or a denial of a simple procedure because it is either outside of the, quote, guideline? Well, there are several hidden costs, shall we say, associated with medical treatment guidelines that aren't readily apparent when these guidelines and the implementation of the guidelines are being discussed. We've talked about the variance process, and in New York, when a procedure is denied, when a request for a variance is denied, you have two options. You can go to medical arbitration or you can go to a hearing before a workers' compensation lodge. And how long do those procedures take? Well, in the guidelines, there are procedures that say a hearing is supposed to be scheduled within 60 days of the denial. Dealing with the New York bureaucracy, however, they tend to treat mandatory timeframes as somewhat less than mandatory. And when you go to a hearing in New York, and if your request for a variance after you argue uh, the case and after... Perhaps you take depositions of the doctors. If the judge still rules against the injured worker, your only recourse is to file an appeal to the Workers' Compensation Board, which is our process in New York. Currently in New York, the average wait time for the determination on an appeal is about a year. And what we find and what we have is a person whose doctor is requesting maybe another 24 sessions of physical therapy now won't get a final determination on the necessity of that 24 sessions of physical therapy until a year from now. And who's to say if the treatment at that point is even warranted? All right. Let's assume this particular client of yours or injured worker who is going through this process, whose doctor says you need 24, 10, 15 more treatments of physical therapy, or you need a diagnostic study such as an EMG or an MRI or something else. That person presumably is on workers' comp, collecting $400 a week, $800 a week. Pick the number. It would seem to me that the insurance companies are going to take a look and say, well, wait a minute. If we're going to get into the system where we're hiring lawyers to take depositions of doctors and paying the fees, paying the stenographic costs, paying the legal time, and we're paying out weekly disability benefits until this person gets better and gets back to work, it would seem to me that the economics of it all would say to the insurance company, you know what? Screw the guidelines. Let's authorize the treatment. Does that happen? It doesn't happen because insurance companies and authorizations are run by claims adjusters who generally tend not to think by the box most of the time. The good ones will. Most of them that I deal with will not. Uh, We have situations where, as you say, a person is receiving indemnity benefits and is getting paid on a weekly basis, and the doctor thinks that there's a rotator cuff tear based upon his clinical examination. An orthopedist who's been practicing orthopedics for 20 years thinks the claimant has a rotator cuff tear in their shoulder. The doctor recommends surgery. The doctor recommends an MRI. The insurance company denies the MRI because they've sent it out for a utilization review and they feel that the MRI is not necessary. So then the case goes through the legal process. All the while, the carrier is paying indemnity benefits. The claimant wants to get back to work. The doctor wants to perform the surgery. Eventually, it goes through the entire process. The claimant eventually has the surgery and 20 weeks later is back to work. 
The carrier, instead of paying for an $800 MRI initially and getting the surgery done quickly, because of their reliance upon the procedures in the medical treatment guidelines and the steps that they say you must take in order to get this recommended treatment, instead of paying $800 and getting a worker back to work immediately, ends up spending another $10,000, $20,000 in indemnity benefits and costing themselves money. And I want to pick up on two points that you mentioned in that, and I kind of set up one of them in my question to you. That's presuming the injured worker is receiving indemnity benefits. A lot of times you may have the claim either denied or indemnity benefits not paid until there's a more firm diagnosis or there may be some causation issues. There may be an issue as to whether the disability is a result of the injury or some pre-existing condition so that the injured worker and his family are receiving no benefits and you're going through this process. You also introduced the other term that we talked about at the very beginning, which is utilization review. And that oftentimes goes hand in hand procedurally, bureaucratically with the medical treatment guidelines. Let's define the term. What is utilization review? How does it impact workers' comp? Is it universal or is it state-specific? Up until recently in New York, we didn't really have too many people or too many insurance companies who used utilization review. And utilization review is when an insurance company sends the medical records out to what the guidelines term a qualified medical professional. Now, that's not oftentimes not a doctor. It's a nurse case manager. It's some other nebulous type of qualified medical professional who reviews the records and then, without ever having examined the individual worker, determines whether or not a treatment is necessary. In New York, we never had utilization reviews until the medical treatment guidelines were implemented. Now, when a doctor submits a request for a treatment, the carrier in New York will send the records out to a doctor in Oklahoma who has no idea what the individual problems with the patients are other than what he sees or she sees on the records that the insurance company chooses to send them. So you have decisions being made about treatment for individuals based upon what may be incomplete records and based upon the treatment guidelines, which may not be suitable for this individual patient. So the utilization review provider or the UR provider, just to give the proper shortcut to it, their medical professional does a paper review. There's no interview with the claimant? None. No examination of the claimant? None. Is there a dialogue with the treater? There can be. And there is a procedure in most guidelines that allows the utilization review company or person to interact with the claimant's treating provider. I'll tell you that it doesn't happen very often. I think I've heard of it once. And really, you've got to get a provider willing to and have the time to connect probably telephonically with this case manager or utilization review provider somewhere in some other jurisdiction. And I know there are reluctance among our treating doctors in Massachusetts to get involved in this. Uh, Workers' comp is burdensome enough in terms of the paper that's required, the forms that are required, the depositions, the impact on their time, and the delay of getting approved care that ultimately results in another unintended consequence, which is something called cost shifting. And we're going to talk about that after we take a quick break, and we will be back with our guest, Michael Gruber, in discussing medical treatment guidelines. Looking for a process server you can trust? 
ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screen process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screen process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters and our guest, Michael Gruber, talking about medical treatment guidelines. Michael, when we last were chatting before the break, I was beginning to lead you in a discussion of cost shifting. And when we're talking about the frustrations, the delays of obtaining what a treating physician wants for his client, our client, his patient, a particular medical procedure, there is a process if the insurance company denies it or utilization review denies it or the medical treatment guidelines say it's outside their guidelines. And that is where the injured worker or his doctor seek another path to getting treatment. Tell us about that. Absolutely. When you have an injured worker whose goal is to get back to work and who is not necessarily savvy in terms of medical they have their provider, hopefully they trust, to tell them what their best course of treatment is. And when you have a conflict between what the medical provider is telling the injured worker and the medical treatment guidelines, and if the provider goes through all the steps and the treatment is still denied, that injured worker is still going to want to get that treatment because their doctor has told them that this is the best way they can get better and this is the best way that they can get themselves back to work. So when you have an injured worker who's been told that an insurance company is not going to pay for a specific treatment, there's two options. One, the doctor does the treatment and doesn't get paid for it, and we actually see that a bit in New York. The other, probably more likely alternative, is that the injured worker finds somebody else to pay for the treatment. They put it through their private insurance, they put it through Medicare, and they get the treatment and someone else pays for it. This results in cost shifting. It takes the burden of paying for medical care from the party that should properly be responsible for it, who is, of course, the workers' compensation insurance company, and puts it on to either private health insurance or the government. And so it takes the cost of the medical care outside the system. And I think that with the advent of the Affordable Health Care Act and the more universal availability and requirement for everyone to have medical coverage, this is going to become an increasingly large problem. Because a lot of times today, at least in New York, we have people who don't have private insurance if they've been terminated from their job after an injury or they're working in a low-paying job that doesn't have insurance, and they can't put their health care through private insurance because they don't have it. Now, if they're, everyone's mandated to have private health insurance, they are going to go and they're going to put the treatment that they feel that they need and that their doctor has told them that they need in order to get better through private health insurance. And it's going to result in higher costs for everyone for medical treatment. You mentioned that the medical treatment guidelines were promulgated by generally two types of organizations, which I know to be comprised of competent medical professionals who utilize whatever set of data or information that has gone into promulgating 
what the necessary treatment should be for a particular type of injury. And I've noticed there is a term that is becoming increasingly used. It's been widely used in the medical community for many years, but it is creeping its way into the AMA guides for the evaluation of permanent impairment. It's part of the foundation of medical treatment guidelines and utilization review guidelines. And that is the concept of evidence-based medicine. It would seem on the surface, first of all, as a lawyer, anything that relies upon competent evidence would seem to me to be something that's a positive thing and that why not have evidence-based medicine? First of all, let's define the term as you understand it and then how it is applied in the setting that we're discussing. Well, evidence-based medicine has been around for quite some time, but it really became popular in the medical community in the early 1990s. And what it is, is it's been defined as, and I'm quoting, the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of current best evidence in making decisions about the care of individual patients. Seems to me a pretty valid definition. You would think. Boiled down to its essence, what it is, is it takes randomized controlled studies and determines from what is best for the general population treatment recommendations for individual patients. And while that sounds good, there's a lot of problems with it. And there's been widespread criticism of the evidence-based medicine movement, even within the medical community. There is not a consensus that evidence-based medicine is really as sound as it is purported to be. When you base your recommendations for treatment on trials, on clinical tests, on systemic or metadata reviews of other clinical trials, what you get is a system that is inherently dependent upon those trials. And if those clinical trials that you're basing treatment recommendations on are flawed or are biased, then the treatment recommendations themselves based upon those studies are necessarily flawed as well. It's the whole theory of garbage in, garbage out. And I think any discussion of implementation or adoption of medical treatment guidelines, the first thing that has to be discussed in any state is the fact that the medicine, the science underlying, underpinning the whole treatment guideline issue may be flawed. Both companies who publish the medical treatment guidelines publish them based upon the principles of evidence-based medicine. If evidence-based medicine itself is flawed, then the whole system collapses. And I don't think many jurisdictions get to the underlying point because everyone takes the validity of evidence-based medicine for granted without looking at it too closely. And let me step back. Let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Let's assume the underlying data is not flawed. And I would probably venture out on a limb and not be too worried that probably for the most part, the data is medically reliable, so that the underlying data isn't flawed. It would seem to me that it's a cookie-cutter approach. You've got a data of individuals in which, for the most part, treatment should be completed in 12 weeks. I would assume going into that data, there are some people that do better earlier and that do better later, that there are individual variances that make up the ultimate consensus that a certain number of visits or a certain wait time before procedure. How does evidence-based medicine deal with the individual, my client, who may not have progressed as well as she should have during therapy and might need more treatment? Or my client who might not show on an MRI a clear definition 
on the image of a surgically treatable lesion. However, the surgeon evaluating that client sees the findings on clinical exam, knows the client, knows his or her job requirements, et cetera. Tell us about the cookie-cutter approach versus the individual variant that affects your client. Well, the short answer, Alan, is that the guidelines don't take into account individual patients. And one of the ironic things about the adoption of medical treatment guidelines based upon the principles of evidence-based medicine is that the initial proponents and the founders of the evidence-based medicine movement back in the early 90s specifically stated in the leading papers on this topic that evidence-based medicine is not to be used for making specific recommendations regarding treatment. And they said it was not to be used to have what's called cookbook medicine. But that is, in fact, exactly what has happened. And the main criticism of the evidence-based medicine medical treatment guidelines is it completely removes the individual judgment of the physician from the treating process. If you have a doctor who feels that a treatment outside or in excess of the guidelines is necessary based upon his clinical evaluation and years of experience in treating certain injuries, the guidelines don't take that into account at all. The people who push the guidelines, and they're not exactly the most unbiased people either, the people who push the guidelines say that there are protections put in for this, but there are absolutely not protections put into this for the injured worker. A doctor who is a specialist and who has treated knees, ankles, backs, whatever, for years, and who knows based upon clinical experience what is wrong with an injured worker, can't cut out the steps of the medical treatment guidelines or perhaps can't get the treatment that he knows in his judgment is the best for an injured worker. And when you talk about the built-in protections to go outside those guidelines, you talked about it earlier. It's right. a request for a variance. It's a request for medical hearing. It's depositions. It's time. It's money. It's delay. And ultimately, the price is paid by our clients and the dollar's are not saved by the insurance company. We could talk for a long time about this. We're going to wrap up. Michael, if somebody wants a copy of your materials, give us your contact information and whether you could make this available. If I could say one more thing about cost, though. As we stated earlier, one of the reasons for the medical treatment guidelines on the insurance company side is it's supposed to save them money in terms of medical costs. We did a study in New York after two years of the medical treatment guidelines, and what we found out was that the cost of the litigation process associated with the medical treatment guidelines was approximately three times the cost of the treatment that was being recommended. So far from being a cost saver for insurance companies and employers, it's not. They end up spending three times as much money to pay for the treatment rather than paying for the treatment that they're denying. But my contact information, if you want to contact me, I am at Pasternak, Tilker, Ziegler, Wall, Stanton, Romano. My office is at 111 Livingston Street, first floor in Brooklyn, New York, 11201. Mm -hmm. I can also be found at mgruber, G-R-U-B-E-R, at workerslaw.com. Thank you. I want to thank Michael Gruber for an interesting discussion on some very controversial and what I'd call hot topics in workers' comp, medical treatment guidelines, evidence-based medicine, and utilization review. Once again, thank you for joining us on Workers' Comp Matters. Hope you'll join us soon for another show. Thanks for listening today. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. I hope you go out and make it a day that matters. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Workers' Cop Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.